Hello and welcome back to the Soccer Brothers Podcast. This is episode number 39. I'm your host, Sal Katan. As always, I'm joined by my brother, Nihal. It's good to be back, Nihal. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, thank you to Dinesh once again for subbing for you. Uh, I hope you had a good time in Hawaii and you are continue to have a good time in California. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm heading back tomorrow. Uh, and then I think after this weekend, we're going to have another episode, so um, that I think that'll be pretty normal. Yeah. Uh, but, you, you know, you got the chance to go to the game, the, the World Cup qualifier last night against Guatemala in Columbus. How was that? Oh, it was excellent. Great atmosphere. Um, wish Ethan Finley was not robbed of his goal, but, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, it was a good performance by the U.S. national team. Also, Monday night. I got to meet Abby Wambach and Megan Rapino, which was fantastic. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's really cool that you got that opportunity. And that was at Ohio State? Yeah, it was at Ohio State. They were here as part of um, Women's History Month, the Ohio State uh, University um, Activities Board brought them in to talk. They were hilarious. They were really nice. They answered the questions. Um, talked about a lot of different issues. Uh, talked about themselves. So it was great. It was absolutely great. Um, and... I showed you the picture. I got to take a picture with them, with a few other people, and I had a chance to go right in between them. You know, I had a chance to just, and I didn't because I was scared. Um, really, I regret. I regret it so much because other people did it later. I don't know or before me. Oh, God. Yeah. Just yeah. Done it. I mean, because I then, I, then I could have cropped everyone else out of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can do that. So. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really cool. So they talked about, like, issues about women's soccer and... Yeah, you know, they talked about, uh, you know, women, the U.S. women's national team made a lot of money for US, the U.S. Soccer Federation. They feel like uh, they are underpaid, which is which is probably true. Um, it is true, actually. Uh, you know, they talked about the NWSL. They talked about... Um, a lot of different things. Donating their brains to research, which I think they first announced uh, at the thing. I just got a Bleacher Report notification saying they would, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah. Uh, talked about Mia Hamm. It was, it was just great. It was wonderful. So, I mean, before you went to that game uh, last night, you must have been pretty nervous. I mean, as, as was I. But, like, after yeah. that Clint Dempsey goal in the 12th minute, were you, like... Uh, I was... I was more relieved after the, uh, oh, who was the second? The Jeff Cameron goal. Um, yeah. I mean, it could have been like 6-7, I think. It was never, I was nervous, but it was never really in doubt, right? We always, we always are going to win. We're going to talk more about the match later, but the main, the main thing we have today is an interview with Phil Shane of BN Sports. He's also a uh, host of the football show on Sirius XM FC, Channel 85. Uh, on BN Sports, he commentates. He also uh, is an analyst on shows like The Locker Room. Um, so he was really, really great to talk to. We're very excited about that. If you are new to the podcast, if this is your first time listening to it, and if you are here because of Phil Shane, um, we are on SoundCloud, but we also are on uh, iTunes and Google Play. So if you have an iPhone, go to your podcast app, um, subscribe to us and you know you'll you'll get you'll have this on your phone and you'll have our future interviews and podcasts maybe they can uh, listen to this one first and then subscribe no no yeah i know i mean definitely if you if you enjoy it if you enjoy what you hear uh yeah um also welcome welcome to the podcast if you are new yeah definitely we're, we're always uh glad to have new listeners but you know he he just he spoke really well and he had some interesting opinions um he, yeah. you know, I think he was a little bit more 
critical than I expected him to be of the U.S. men's national team, which I'm okay with because I'm pretty critical. Yeah. So uh, he gave an interesting opinion. You can definitely you know tell that he he is a fan just like the rest of us, but he has that advanced knowledge that he's had working in this business for years. So uh, yeah. it was a really good conversation. Yeah, and uh, honestly, thanks to him for being on. Um, you know, obviously he didn't have to take time out of his day to be with us, but he did, which is which is awesome. Uh, yeah. So without further ado, uh, enjoy our interview with Phil Shane. We will see you on the other side. Before we get into the interview, we just want to remind you to check out the wonderful soccer apparel brand, AmbitiousStrike.com. Ambitious Strike creates casual clothing for soccer and non-soccer fans alike. They're a great website. If you are interested, go to AmbitiousStrike.com. That's A-M-B-I-T-I-O-U-S-S-T-R-Y-K.com. The link is in the description. And use the code BROTHERS for a 15% discount on your entire order. Go check them out, guys. Here's Phil Shane. Hello. We'd like to welcome our guest, Phil Shane, onto the podcast. He's a play-by-play commentator and an analyst for the BN Sports Network. You can also catch him on the football show on SiriusXMFC. Before we get started, how are you doing, Phil? Um, I could probably use a nap. It's been a busy week, but uh, but it's been a fun one. That's that's great. Um, all right, so why don't we get right into the questions? The first topic we want to talk about is the U.S. men's national team. Uh, of course, in light of the recent results, there's been a lot of pressure on Jurgen Klinsmann, especially from the fan base. Uh, do you think that type of vitriol is justified? And also, even though we won last night, should the pressure still be on him? Uh, two very... Uh... Good questions that have, I guess, a a variety of different ways to look at the answer. Um, I didn't hear a ton of vitriol. I mean, obviously, in the Twitterverse, um, (laughs) where it's 140 character run and hide, uh, it's possible. But I think it is a good sign that there is a criticism, a critique. I mean, if you think about it, if... uh, if Germany had lost to Liechtenstein or Italy to San Marino, um, I kind of have a feeling that uh, that the sports sections would not be too friendly. So I think almost everyone knew that the U.S. was going to bounce back in Columbus um, and that there would be a lot more difficult for Guatemala to catch the U.S. napping a second time. But as far as if... Now we have to pretend that everything's hunky-dory. I think you're fooling yourself. I think there is a tendency in the media to basically blow things out of proportion in both directions. Um, I try to avoid that. Sometimes maybe I become uh, – uh, I victimize myself, but uh, you can't say that uh, that the loss against Guatemala is the end of civilization and uh, the victory in Columbus is one step towards nirvana. I think it's obviously somewhere in between. I think there are a lot of problems that were displayed in Guatemala City um, that you cannot discount you cannot ignore, even though the U.S. was able to bounce back with a win. And, uh, well, I think the U.S. played better, a lot more intense, a lot more pressure, a lot more focused. I don't think you can automatically say, well, it was for nothing, so now everything's solved. So, uh, again, I think that there is a very good chance that this is a U.S. team um, that could easily get to the World Cup, even if they have to limp in. But I think that if you really are looking at where the United States is in the world of soccer, it's not just getting to the World Cup anymore. It's what are you going to do when you get there? 
And uh, I think even looking back to 2014, in my mind, that wasn't good enough. Um, admittedly, you take Belgium to overtime. That's great. That's wonderful. But um, other than Tim Howard, that's a blowout. So uh, I think, if anything, the U.S. has taken a step back. Uh, I think if you look at the U.S. Olympians' effort against Colombia, that's probably a, a real idea of where the United States is in the soccer world at the moment, and there's a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the first time we've missed back-to-back Olympics in soccer since the 60s. I think the first time we've ever missed the U-17 World Cup coming up here. But, but how much of that is an indictment of Klinsmann? Uh, is it more, you know, the players? We don't have the players right now. It's a weird time. Uh, you know, between the old guard and maybe some of the younger players like Pulisic and Zalalem and some of those younger guys. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a combination. Um, this is a little bit of a down cycle. However, you have to wonder if we've truly ever had an up cycle. Uh, I mean, Landon Donovan may be the exception that proves the rule. Clint Dempsey at his peak was a very good player. But I don't think that any of those guys, um, even Landon Donovan, uh, could be considered a world player. So I I think that the U.S. still has a ways to go in that regard. Um, So as far as a down cycle... I think in some ways what we're looking at right now from an MLS perspective is the fact that the league has done a very good job at building up some of the other teams in CONCACAF, Guatemala being one of them. Uh, I know that's a bit of a down cycle for them, but they are a stronger system with MLS as a potential uh avenue than they were before MLS arrived. Now, from a U.S. soccer perspective, um, I don't know if we've quite totally taken advantage of MLS, and I don't know if we ever really will until the development academies are really starting to to pull forward some of these players on an annual basis and to keep them here and give them an avenue to develop rather than having to send them over to Dortmund or Fulham or wherever. So, uh, I think when we look at this, what MLS has done is to widen the pool. Um, it might not have made it uh, a lot deeper, but what we end up having is a lot of good, solid role players. Um, I think that in those solid role players, there might be certain skill sets um, that are not being properly utilized for some of the players that maybe get called up. Uh, but I don't know if we have any real difference makers out there until perhaps you get to a, uh, like a, and I just learned this, the way it pronounces it is Pulisic, uh, the 17 year old at Dortmund. Um, I think you look at, at what he has been able to do this year and it looks like he could end up being a great player, but we thought, thought the same of many other youngsters. So there's, I guess, still some proving to be done. And that's going to be a while. I, I think you look at MLS where are the difference makers? We keep importing them. Um, it's, a, it's a tendency around the world. I mean, you can even look in, in England where so many of the skill players are brought in from elsewhere. And that is a danger if you're trying to develop your own players for a national team. That's not MLS's job. MLS's job is not to make the U.S. 
a world power when it comes to national team soccer. MLS's job is to put forth a product that fans want to pay for and continue to do so. And I think MLS has done a decent job in that regard. Now it's up to U.S. soccer to try and do something with it. Do you think MLS as a league does not lend itself to that type of American player? You know, we see players like Tommy Thompson and Luis Gill not really get chances in, in their teams. Well, I, Thompson's still relatively young. Gill, I think, was given chances, um, but seemed to hit a, a stone wall. Uh, still hasn't quite broken out now that he's gone down to Mexico, but hopefully he will. Um, I, but I would tend to agree. I mean, you look at someone like a, a Benny Failhaber and a Louis, Lee Wynn, though, yeah. uh, and they do tremendously well in MLS but we don't see them on the national team, or if we do, it's out of position. Um, so okay. the question really is, uh, are some of these players that do have these abilities getting called in uh, on the national team to contribute? Now, in regards to playmakers, when you consider it around the world um, – so many teams have switched to the four-two-three-one uh, that there really isn't a true number ten anymore. That that guy in the middle tends to be more of a second striker, a withdrawn forward, um, and you tend to try and get whatever creativity there is from out of the flanks. Uh, so it's not just a U.S. problem, not just an MLS problem. Um, I mean, is there really room for a Gascoigne or Riquelme in the world anymore? They seem to be more the aberrations uh, than the reality. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you've you've said, you know, just now that um, Jurgen Klinsmann, arguably we've taken a step back with the national team uh, under his reigns. Do you think that, because, you know, we can all be critical of him, but the man in charge here, the president of U.S. soccer, Sunil Galati, has constantly shown his support for Jurgen Klinsmann. Do you think that his job is actually in jeopardy right now, regardless of a loss in Guatemala or um, this weak qualifying campaign so far? I doubt it very seriously, um, especially with the Copa America Centenario coming up in the in the summer. I don't think they would want to try and change horses at this particular point. I think... If they had not responded, if they would have lost, and especially if it would have been as abysmal a performance as we saw a few days earlier, if they would have lost against uh, Guatemala in Columbus, I think the calls would have been more deafening. I still have a feeling that Sunil would probably hesitate um, to act on them because there is so much that's been invested in Jurgen Klinsmann and so much that's still guaranteed uh, that has yet to be delivered. However, I, I think that maybe, just maybe, uh, there might have been a few changes in the way things are working. Um, I think even though they did get the win against Guatemala, you can't, as we talked about, pretend that everything's great. Uh because remember, he's not just the national team manager, he's also the technical director. And you alluded to some of the problems that we've seen at the under-17, the under-20, the under-23 level since he's been in charge. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to hit an age group that we can go, yes, that is Jurgen Klinsmann's fault. I don't know if it's going down to the under-4s or not, but at the same point, I'm not quite sure we want to give him 16, 17 more years, uh, hoping that we can finally get to this beautiful game that was promised. Okay, yeah. 
And, and when looking at this team, like the, the physical team, the actual players, the setup, uh, the way they perform, uh, what do you think is the biggest weakness? It's hard to say. I mean, so many people are talking about constant change. But in certain areas, I think it would be nice if there was more change. In others, I, I 100% agree. Um, from an offensive standpoint, I mean, credit to Clint Dempsey. Uh, Josie Altador gets on the board, but uh, I'm not quite sure either of them are playing to the point where you would consider them guaranteed. I think one thing that's somewhat upsetting perhaps from a U.S. perspective is there's no Harry Kane or Jamie Vardy behind to push them. Um, but there are certain players, maybe a speed player or a poacher, uh, two that in my mind it would be great to have seen get a call back in January it would be someone like a Quincy Ameriqua, uh or a Jack McInerney um, who have both gotten off to decent starts. Mike McGee being another one who has been called up, but again, not always played in his uh, his prime position. I always think about what would have happened if Charlie Davies hadn't had his accident because I think when you take a look at the way, the partnership that was starting to be formed with uh, Charlie Davies and Josie Altador uh, up front, the, that really had a ton of potential. Um, Davies is back. Congratulations. It's great to see him alive, first of all, let alone being able to continue to play at a relatively high level. Uh, but I don't think just from the time that was lost and uh, uh, the injuries that were suffered will ever quite see him at that level again. But I still think from an offensive perspective, if you're not scoring, if you're having a difficulty passing the ball, if you're having a difficulty maintaining possession, um, call in some new players, try a few new things. Uh, from that perspective, I think while there have been a ton of changes, it tends to be the same players being pushed into different roles, and that's just rearranging the deck chairs. Now, on the defensive side, I think, if anything, there's been too many changes. And again, uh, maybe uh, you can take a look at some of these guys and say they should have gotten a little bit more of a time, but the, the real concern to me is the fact that you're looking at, say, over the last, what is it, 23, 24 games dating back to the start of 2015 that uh, he has called in 10 different center backs uh, into the starting lineup and gone with 12 different pairings. Uh, I mean, you, you take a look at what some of the, the Giants end up doing, and they tend to find uh, two or three and work from there. If someone gets hurt, maybe they'll roll in an alternate here or there. But um, from a U.S. perspective, I'm not quite sure if these guys um, know each other's names, let alone each other's tendencies half the time. Yeah, yeah. I definitely I definitely agree with that. Do you think that – I mean, we, we, a common theme that we've been talking about on the past few episodes has been the identity of this national team. You, you talk about, particularly in the midfield and the attack, how players are always – uh, you know, being shifted around the same players, but do you think that those same players, even when you look at like these games, do you think that they know their identity or they know what their role is for the national team? Maybe they have a different role every game, but do you think that Klinsman needs to be more consistent in, in the way that, you know, he commands his players, you know, night in and night out? In some ways, yes, but really from a national team perspective, maybe he just needs to learn the limitations. Um, he's probably well aware of them. I mean, he's been doing it for a while uh, to some success. However, 
I think when you basically have these guys coming in for a day or two, maybe if you're lucky, three or four days of training before a match, you really don't want to be basically playing 52 pickup. I mean, you, you want to, you want to try and give these guys a head start. So again, what we saw in Columbus was a little bit more of that, a bit more of a traditional look with uh, the pieces of the puzzle in recognizable form. Um, and admittedly, while the players that he put out there against Guatemala on the road had played in the positions that he had put them in, they are not used to it. I mean, DeAndre Yedlin only playing two of, I think, almost 20 games at Sunderland at right wing. So why put him up there and expect him uh, to be Frank Ribéry? I mean, put him at right back where he's playing comfortably, put Cameron at center back where he's been playing, leave Orozco on the bench where he's comfortable, unfortunately, at Tijuana. Um, mixed disc route has had some success at New York City, but it's been at an offensive midfield. Michael Bradley at Toronto has been pushed back to defensive midfield. Why do you flip those two guys? Uh, I, Tim Howard, I mean, we're talking about a legend, but at the same point, we're talking about a legend who uh, obviously is nearing the end uh, of the string. He's been on the bench for a good part of a couple of months. Now you throw him out there. I know he has the veteran leadership, the experience, so maybe that was something he was looking for. But uh, And I don't think you can really blame Howard for either of the goals that were scored. Maybe you could say that a, a slightly faster, slightly uh, younger goalkeeper might have been able to get to Edgar Castillo's back pass and not have allowed the first corner, which led to the second corner and the opening goal. Um but again, it was just strange when you take a look out there. Uh, Stephen Goff, I had the chance to hear him the day of the Columbus game, and he was asked, uh, we're talking about a guy who's been covering the national team for a quarter century, uh, the Washington Post writer, and he was asked what he thought, what he expected from the U.S., and he said, I have no idea. It's Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, and uh, again, we take a look at what was put out there, and it's what you would expect. But then again, Jurgen sometimes tends to – to throw a surprise or a wrinkle out there and, and maybe uh, a few too many at times. Yeah. All right. A, a couple more questions about the U S men's national team. Um, so are there any players, you, you alluded to some earlier, like Benny Fellhammer, uh or Mike McGee. Are there any players that weren't on this roster that you feel like really deserve to be there? Well, it, it's hard because again, you have to remember that from a U.S. perspective, it was two fronts with the Olympians mm -hmm. Um, and in my mind, I would have rather seen Brooks and Yedlin facing off against Columbia, throw as much as you can there, uh, because really the only way that the U.S. would take a blow is if they would have lost both of these games against Guatemala. And for all of the weaknesses that the United States might have, or should I say the lacks of strength, um, we should be able to find 22 guys that can beat Guatemala if you put them in the right position, give them the, the right game plan. Uh, and even though... Some people justified it a little bit by saying that the 1-1 down in Barranquilla was good. They had chances, admittedly on the counter, but they did not take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone that thought that a road goal was going to be good enough to survive against Colombia in the second leg, even if you're playing at home, was just fooling yourself. So, again, for the Olympics, it was pretty much trying to avoid one bad game where even if there was a bad game, the U.S. still had, uh, I guess, a little bit of leeway, a little bit of playing room. So I would have loved to have seen some more of those younger players 
pushed down. Even a, even a, a Pulisic see him come over, and I know that um, Brooks again with the knee injury, Pulisic with the ear infection wasn't able to come over earlier. But it would have been nice to see them really stockpile that, and uh, and then try and plug some of the holes on the national team. Like I mentioned, um, with Quincy. You're talking about a guy that sometimes seems to be running without his brain, but at least he can run and he can test defenses. And when you're talking about um, in the case of being especially on the road in Guatemala, where it seemed like the game plan was a 50-yard outlet pass, uh, it would have been nice to have someone that could run onto it. Uh, That's not Clint Dempsey anymore. And even for Bobby Wood, uh, that's not exactly his game either. So maybe uh, they could have done something in that regard. Uh, I think with Wondolowski, we know what he's done. Admittedly, he's off to a decent start with San Jose, but I would have liked to have seen uh, a couple of other players uh, like a McInerney, someone that could be just a garbage man inside. McGee's been playing well uh, from a center forward position. Will Bruin leading the league in goals and leading the league in, in assists. Um, why not give him a shot? I mean, you're supposed to to reward players for the way they're playing for their club team, um, and he never even gets a sniff. So people might say, well, yeah, those are just MLS caliber players. You never really know until you put them to that next test. And again, I'm not saying that they're superstars. I don't think the U.S. Uh, has the luxury of having any superstars. So what you need to do is take what you have at your disposal, find a way to meld those players into the right game plan and get something out of it. Um, yeah. Now, if you're, if you're fortunate enough to be coaching a Spain or a Germany or a Brazil or an Argentina, um, you can kind of go in with a game plan, with a with a – pet formation and kind of fill in the blanks. But from a U.S. perspective, I think you have to look at your strengths and build from there. For example, why not? We have so many center backs. Why not go with three center backs? We're concerned about Fabian Johnson and DeAndre Yedlin's defensive responsibilities. So why not push them up uh, almost in a 3-5-2 with wing backs and give them some cover? Uh, we're, we're worried about the central midfield. Um, who can pair with with Michael Bradley? So again, why not just find a way to uh, to put people in those positions rather than constantly trying to force it into that four two 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 or that empty bucket four four two? So um, it, there's and sorry to ramble here, but I mean, even looking back over the last year and a half, if I remember, there's about six different formations that the U.S. has gone through in one form or another, um, and just does not seem to find that happy spot to stick with. So we'll see. I mean, again, the the victory in Columbus probably locks up advancement to the hex, um, and they will go in as the heavy favorite to finish as a top three team. You have uh, that wild card possibility, even if you do finish fourth of of qualifying. Again, I think the U.S. is going to make the World Cup, but if anyone thinks that 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 means that things are going great, they have a much lower bar or threshold than I do. Yeah, I I mean, I I agree with that. I think that's the frustrating part um, when people are talking about Klinsman. Um, And the other frustrating thing to me is you, you sort of touched on it. Um, you know, it's Klinsman in the past, whatever, whatever Klinsman says, he seems to go against at some point. He has said, you know, the most important thing is getting playing time uh, and, you know, it being in, in good form. Um, you know, time and time again, we see players like Eric Lehigh, uh, Benny Fellhaber, 
Jorge Villafania, Sebastian Lechet. Those players are looked over for maybe players who aren't getting playing time with their club. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts on that uh, was. I, I agree. He seems to have his favorites. Um, and, again, that's the coach's prerogative. If you mm-hmm. think that these are the type of guys you want in the clubhouse, I've talked to a lot of players over the, over the years, um, and there is something to be said for having a national team chemistry that you don't want to disrupt. Uh, you don't basically only call in two or three and bring in 20 new guys um, and expect things to work. You kind of want to have that family atmosphere uh, and then bring in a few pieces of the puzzle at a time so they can adapt. However, again, over the last two years, it's not as though that this family has been performing that well. I mean, if anything, it seems rather dysfunctional. So uh, I, maybe it's time to cast off a few of the of the favorite kids and nephews and, and look elsewhere. And hopefully we'll get that chance during the Confederations, I mean, during the Copa America Centenario, but I kind of doubt it. So I think that some of the best chances to see some of those faces um, were in these early games, the St. Vincent uh, these two Guatemala games, even going back to January and the friendlies. Um, I, I think that those were the opportunities and perhaps maybe the last opportunities bar uh, a post Copa America friendly or two uh, until we get to Russia 2018. Yeah. And that leads into my final question about the U.S. Men's National Team. What do you think our expectations should be for this summer in the Copa America Centenario? It's hard to say just because you're never quite sure which Copa America teams are coming from South America. Um, for all the fact that this could be the greatest soccer tournament in the United States since World Cup 1994, or at least since, uh, since the women um, had their World Cup, for all intents and purposes, it's a glorified friendly Um, And I know FIFA's put it on the calendar, but a lot of these South American teams are talking about bringing some younger players, some B players, trying to utilize the competition to identify other players for the qualifying marathon. Um, And it's one thing if Argentina is going to bring Lionel Messi, Gonzalo Higuain and company, it would be another if they're going to be, and as talented as they are, but like a Correa and a Vieto just to give them a run out. So I guess just taking it as is, I think they should be able to get out of their group, but I would be really surprised if they do much more beyond that. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's definitely a realistic expectation to have. Uh, why don't we move it over to La Liga? Obviously, you cover them on BN Sports, uh, so let's get, get right into it. So with Real Madrid 10 points behind Barcelona and one point behind Athletic, Atletico Madrid right now, in retrospect, do you think that Florentino Perez made the right decision to fire Carlo Ancelotti before this season? <laughs> uh, I, in my mind, nowhere near. But then again, for me, if it was up to me, Vicente Del Bosque would probably still be the manager. Um, Florentino Perez has has a habit of seeing things that are broken that maybe aren't, um, and he also can be very, very demanding. Uh, I, they've been claiming for years that to win the decima was the was the holy grail, but then again, it just seems to be another trophy a year later. So 
Uh, now, I know Ancelotti had some physical issues, uh, but obviously he's still good enough for Bayern Munich at this point after his sabbatical. Uh, and in many ways, I think he would have been perfect for the, the, this stage of Real Madrid. He might not be the type of guy that's going to bring up a whole bunch of youngsters and form them into a super team, but he is the type of guy that can handle a lot of the attitudes and uh, the egos of that super team and keep them super for a while. And that was obviously something that was beyond Rafa Benitez's scope. Um, I, I like some of the signs of what we've seen from Zinedine Zidane, but asking him to uh, to be able to mimic Ancelotti um, is not fair to, to Zidane. I think in the long term, he does seem to have that ability to to get the respect of these particular players. He is showing a tendency um, towards allowing them to go out and play and be entertaining. So I think that the future is bright, but uh, I think if Ancelotti had been here from the outset, they should most likely be a lot closer than where they are. And, yeah, that leads right into my next question. Uh how do you evaluate evaluate excuse me Zinedine Zidane's performance thus far, and do you think going forward he should be the manager? In my mind, the answer is yes, but you have the transfer ban looming, mm. and let's just say that they do decide to stick with Zidane, which I think that they probably will. Uh, now he goes into this summer transfer window and gets the players he thinks that are going to be able to to lift Real Madrid back to that upper echelon where they can challenge Barcelona. Now let's get two months into the season where basically Real Madrid has been um, – slapped on the wrist with the two transfer period ban just as Barcelona was and things aren't working and you're 10 points behind um, at the end of September. What do you do now? I mean, even if you do go out and you find the greatest technical director that's out there, he's got a year before he can bring in any of his players and he's got to work with what you have. So in my mind, if there is any thought of making a switch, you have to make it at the end of this season to give the new man a chance to get his players in. Now, from a Barcelona perspective, they were able to survive, but they already had Luis Enrique. They obviously have Lionel Messi. Um, they went out and were able to get Neymar and, and Luis Suarez, most importantly, before, uh, before the band hit. And uh, they've done so well, they actually survived two months without Messi and actually pulled away in the table. So... I think to expect Real Madrid to be able to do the same um, might be asking a lot. So I, I'd love to see them stick with Zidane, but if there is any doubt, it could be a disaster if they try and make a switch afterwards. Okay. Yeah, so sticking with uh, you know La Liga and Real Madrid, uh, obviously you know one of the biggest games in the world is this weekend, El Clasico, between Real Madrid and Barcelona. You know, obviously Barcelona have been the more dominant team this year in La Liga. How do you think Real Madrid can shift their luck to beat Barcelona or yeah well I think both teams have kind of turned their focus towards Europe um and for Real Madrid perhaps the best chance the last chance to to claim any silverware um Barcelona obviously already has to feel as though this is kind of locked up in uh the Copa del Rey on the back burner um so in some ways because La Liga um is practically done and dusted that takes a lot of the pressure off. Um, now, from a Barcelona perspective, can they get up 
and it sounds strange, um, but maybe in comparison, can they get up to a level as much as a Real Madrid who have been embarrassed the last couple of Clásicos? So I think that for what we've seen from Zidane, um, they're playing better, especially with Benzema and Bale back healthy. Uh, they're more dangerous. Both teams have their defensive frailties. But I think that Real Madrid might be actually be a little bit hungrier. Again, in a, at a game that really doesn't mean anything except for pride, um, this, this could be very entertaining uh, from a Real Madrid perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that I think they're going to win, but I don't think that they look as, as lost as they might have the last couple of times. So, uh, again, from a, from a tune-in on April 2nd perspective on being sports, I think that you're going to be quite entertained. Yeah, and, of course, you guys can catch El Clasico on being sports Phil will be commentating along with Ray Hudson. Um, you know, something else that has been talked about in maybe the Spanish media is Ronaldo's role, Cristiano Ronaldo's role with Real Madrid. Uh, do you think it's time for them to move on from Ronaldo, which I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous since he's still probably one of the top two best players in the world? Tough question, but again, transfer ban. Mm-hmm. Um, if you sell him now, you end up getting probably 80, 90, 100 million dollars that you can go out and try and get someone. Question is, is there anyone out there that's worth it? Um, if you wait, then you're basically stuck with a guy who seems to be starting that slide down. Um, talking to Bobo Vieri, and he kind of gets upset every time you even mention that. He says, okay, so instead of scoring 50 goals, he scores 45. I mean, are there any other guys out there that could do that? And he's got a point. But now, say for a, se- a second, all of a sudden, um, it drops from 50 to 25. You've thrown 40, 50 million dollars potentially out the window. So you also have to remember that he is not a Florentino Perez player. Um, came in under Calderon. Uh, one of the reasons that Real Madrid went out and got Gareth Bale was so that Florentino would have his crown jewel. Uh, and whether you think that Bale can replace Ronaldo or not, you never really know what's going on in Florentino Perez's mind. So in my mind, the answer is no, keep him. But maybe it's time to convert him back to CR9 uh, as opposed to CR7. I mean, you take a look, other than an Espanol game or two, um, even the Roma game, I don't think we really saw Ronaldo at his best, the ability to beat players on the dribble. He still can be fantastic, um, entertaining on free kicks, uh, put on a show, uh, and score some wonder goals, but the ability to just burn past players and create himself, I'm not quite sure if it's there. Now, if Bale, if Benzema are both there and on fire, um, now you toss Ronaldo into the mix and it becomes that much more dangerous. So, again, the question becomes, if there is any thought of selling him, maybe now is the time where you can still get that that huge price tag. And remember, this is the Real Madrid um, that has gotten rid of heroes in the past rather quickly uh, from Raul to Iker Casillas to Fernando Hierro. Uh, there aren't many in the Florentino Perez era that die with their spurs on. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree that Ronaldo, you know, should be deployed in a more central role up top. 
But uh, do you think that part of the reason that Barcelona has had more success than Real Madrid, especially in recent years, has been because of uh, Real Madrid's lack of youth development? And do you think their strategy over the summer of just buying one player or two players rather than you know focusing a little bit more on depth is the right strategy? You know, your Galactico or, or whatever you know you call it. Do you think that they uh, apply the right strategy over the summer? Well, not everyone can be a Barcelona, and when you think about it, I mean, look at all of the money and effort that Manchester City put in, and you don't see many players popping up from there. I mean, even Chelsea doesn't really bring up its own. What it does is it goes out and scours the world for 16- and 17-year-olds and throw them in there, and still um, they're not able to bring up a, a horde of players through the pipeline. I think what Barcelona has been able to do uh, at that level of the game is phenomenal. And it, maybe it can't be repeated. Um, in some ways, even they've had to modify at times, going out and spotting a weakness so they go and get a Mascherano, spot a weakness, they get a Rakitic, spot a weakness, they get a Suarez. Um, but it all kind of goes into the fold. And if it doesn't work like Ibrahimovic, um, you sell it and you move on. Now, from a Real Madrid perspective, this has been going on for a while when you think about it, even beyond Florentino Perez, um, bringing in players like Hugo Sanchez, going back to the times of De Stefano and Puskas. Uh, if there is a best player in the world, um, and especially if he's Spanish, um, Real Madrid wants to have that white jersey on his back. And for many years, it has worked. I, I think you take a look back, probably the best example of, of what I'm talking about you look back at the Manuel Pellegrini years, where it pretty much was kind of that tail end of the, the Galacticos scheme, where you have the superstars in the attack and the, the local produced players in defense, um, and they had their best record of all time. The problem was it still wasn't good enough to beat Barcelona, so Pellegrini got the sack. Um, it, it's, it's the unfortunate circumstance of Ronaldo growing up in the time of Messi. Uh, it's it's just in some ways bad luck. I think what they do is phenomenal. What they do is outstanding. But um, we're talking about over the past decade um, what is likely to be viewed as the greatest team ever put together. Yeah, yeah I definitely agree. No matter what, it's going to be hard for Real Madrid because of that Barcelona side. Uh, so moving over to the Champions League, but still talking about Spanish teams, the, uh, the quarterfinals of the Champions League are set, the draw happened, and on Tuesday, Barcelona and Atletico Madrid are going to play in that first leg um, in the Camp Nou. Do you think that Atletico stands a chance against Barcelona? And, um, yeah. I think they do. Uh, Diego Simeone has found an answer many times in big games. If this was a final... I wouldn't be surprised if he found a way to frustrate Barcelona to the point where Atletico could win. The problem with Barcelona that you have is even if you do have a good result in the first leg, there's always leg two. And that's where they tend to start pulling away. Um, I think what we've started to see this year for Atleti, though, has been interesting. They tried to, when they brought in a lot of these players like Correa and Vieto and Jackson Martinez, um, that they tried to play more of a finesse game. Midway through the season, though, uh, it wasn't working. And Diego Simeone was smart enough to realize that, kind of went back to the 4-2-2-2. Um, and uh, basically 
tried to find some way with Torres, Correa, etc., uh, to partner up with with Griezmann to some success to the point where if they would have been able to uh, to make it through the Clasico, um, I think they would have a legitimate chance. But the the fact that they have lost the series to Barcelona uh, and now uh, are basically out of the running. This is their chance to focus in. Um, I'm not quite sure, though, with especially all of the injuries, Godin, Jimenez, um, Savic also all injured at, at the same particular point. If they're quite at their peak, um, they've missed Thiago as well, going out to get Augusto Fernandez was a nice move, but it's not as though this is the best that Simeone can throw out there. There's still a ton of questions, um, and they're still arguably a top five or six team in the world. It's just how do they match up against Barcelona over two legs? So I wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, get a, a result, probably a draw in the in the first leg. But for them to be able to hold up over 180 minutes, I'm not quite sure that's doable. Okay. So on to our final topic, uh, Comnable qualifiers, uh, the South American qualifiers, World Cup qualifiers. Uh, one of the biggest stories uh, from this qualifying campaign is Ecuador. Uh, they're atop of the table tied with uh, Uruguay. Uh, how are Ecuador doing so well and what are they doing exactly? That's a broad question, I know. But. It is, and it is a question that you wonder if we would ask in about three or four more rounds' time. Okay. Um, because now all of a sudden you're starting to see the wheels wobble a little bit. You're starting to see the shortcomings over their last uh, three games. They're still a dangerous team. They're still a team that I would say has a very good shot at making it to Russia. But... Uh, with Miller Bolaños and Felipe Caicedo out for these last two games, they were missing a spark up top. Um, there's so many players on this team that I love. I love Alex Dominguez, the goalkeeper, even if he didn't have the greatest of games against Colombia. Um, Walter IOV is a legend. Um, to be able to continue to play physically and mentally at the age that he is at that left back spot um, is probably one of the most unsung stories in the world of football. Uh, they're a different team than Colombia. They do have some of the same skill, but they have a little bit more iron in the midfield. Um, unfortunately for them, uh, because of some tragedies in the past, like I said, there are some young players like Bolanos, especially that have stepped up. Fidel Martinez is another one, but I think that they will only go as far as Felipe Caicedo is able to carry them. And I'm not quite sure that's going to be as a top two team, but I wouldn't be surprised if they are a top four team. Okay. Um, yeah, and that being said, uh, it's pretty congested, the qualifying so far in South America. Uh, first and seventh are only separated by four points. Uh, and, you know, two of these teams aren't going to make it. Four get automatic qualification. One goes to an intercontinental playoff. Um which team, which teams do you think have the lowest chance of qualifying for the World Cup? That is so hard because, again, it could vary from uh, if you would have asked me two months ago after the last rounds, I would have come up with a totally different answer. I, I think that regardless of whatever issues they might have had at the outset, there is little doubt that Brazil and Argentina are gobble up two of the two of the four. 
Um, now it gets interesting. Uh, Caicedo comes back, stays healthy. Does Ecuador slide into that three or four spot? Um, Chile playing outstanding through the summer. Uh, got off to a good start in qualifying, and then the house blew up. And uh, I like Pete C, but he's trying to change a decade's worth of Bielsa um, into a four-two-three-one at a time where Alexis seems to be slowing down just a little bit. Uh, I'm not quite sure that Chile is going to be able to bounce back. We saw a little good, a little bad over these two contests. I think that they will be in a top five picture, but I'm not quite sure they're going to be top four. Um, with Uruguay, the fact that they ha- were able to start their resuscitation, their resurgence without um, Luis Suarez is a huge sign. Uh, and for a country that basically, again, famously only has about three, four million people to continue to roll out soccer star after soccer star, um, I think what we saw over these two games uh, under Oscar Washington Tavares, the, the dean of South American coaches, they're going to be in the mix. Um, after that, it gets it gets a little interesting. And I wouldn't even be surprised to see even a team like Peru, if Gareca can uh, find the pieces together and maybe get off of his Pizzato kick and just let um, Guerrero and company try and handle things. There's talent there with Cuero, uh, Farfan, Still not quite up to to where we thought he could be, but that means that there could be more in the tank. Um, It's one of the joys of South America. Even a team like Bolivia uh, can give you a scare, as we saw, especially in their home match against Colombia in La Paz. Um, But against uh, the big boys, again, with Bolivia and Venezuela probably bringing up the rear, um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if those other eight teams are still in it with just a, a round or two left to go. Yeah, and I think uh, in the 2014 World Cup, we kind of take it for granted because, of course, Brazil was the host, so we got six South American teams. Uh, what Two of these teams aren't going to make it, uh, two of these top seven teams. Um, with that being said, do you think Brazil is in a position to legitimately compete for a World Cup title at this point in time? We'll, we'll get a decent idea of that um, this summer okay. uh, with both the Olympic Games and the Copa America Centenario. Dunga is going to have to stretch things out. And admittedly, with the Olympics, you're pretty much talking mainly uh, an under-23 side. But then again, so many of the superstars for Brazil are already bursting onto the scene um, well before 23. So uh, I think that Dunga has a little bit of a luxury uh, to try and spread things out. Um, where does Neymar go, obviously, is a little bit of a question. But, again, the talent is there. Can he find a way to mold them um, into something that is worthy of a title? So I think just by talent alone, because if there are technical issues, tactical issues, um, there's no saying that Dunga is going to be there by Russia 2018. Uh, but, you know, Brazil will be. And... Uh, And with all of that talent, you have to say that they have a chance at the outset just by stepping on the field. I think that Tata Martino and Argentina have started to take that step, although he's still trying to find a way um, to get Messi his best combination. It seems like Di Maria is in the mix. seems like Benega is in the mix. Um, But as far as whether it's Aguero or Higuain – it doesn't quite seem to be clicking. And who knows, maybe it's a Correa, maybe it's a Vieto, maybe it's a Paulo Dybala. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's it's a nice problem to have. But I'd say as far as Brazil, absolutely, they would have to go in as one of the favorites. They'd be one of the seeds, bar an absolute disaster, and the same story for Argentina. All right. So last question of the day. Uh, BN Sports just announced that they bought the rights to the NASL, uh, the North American Soccer League. Uh, what does this mean for the NASL and U.S. soccer as a whole? Well, it's interesting to tell. I mean, the, it's going to be from a soccer fan's perspective, uh, if I understand this correctly, um, we're going to have Barcelona, Real Madrid, and then the nightcap's going to be the strikers in Miami FC. So if you're comparing NASL up against the best of the best, the cream of the crop, that's a pretty high bar to measure yourself against. I've seen a few of these NASL games, uh, especially with the strikers living down here in South Florida. Um, and there is some good, there is some bad. It's not MLS level all the time. Sometimes um, that can be a good thing. But uh, it'll be interesting to find out along the way because there are some some interesting players. Uh, there is a growing and healthier uh, league system, so I'm excited to see how this thing plays out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it'll it'll be exciting for you know being sports to get uh, more American soccer than you know they previously had. Uh, if you want to, you know, check, if you want to watch Phil Sheen, then uh, go to the Being Sports Network. You can also listen to him on SiriusXMFC. Uh, you know, you and Ray Hudson are kind of one, an iconic pairing in terms of commentary. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of American soccer fans who are listening to this will be watching uh, El Clasico this weekend, so make sure to watch that. Uh, if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's just his name, at Phil Shane. But uh, thank you for the for your time, Phil. No problem, Sahil Nihal. Let's do it again. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Good luck surviving Toledo, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed our interview with Phil Shane. We loved having him on. We had a great conversation with him. You can catch him this Saturday on BN Sports along with Ray Hudson at 2.30 as Barcelona takes on Real Madrid at home in El Clasico. You can also listen to him on, in the mornings, weekday mornings, on the football show on Sirius XM FC Channel 85. All right. All right, yeah. Uh, so we had a lot of U.S. soccer on Tuesday night. Why don't we cover the first game that happened, which was the U.S. versus Guatemala in the World Cup qualifier. I mean, we touched on this in, in the Phil Shane interview, but uh, just to go over the goals, Clint Dempsey scored in the 12th minute, and then Jeff Cameron added a header in the 35th minute. Then Graham Zuzzi opened up the second half in the 46th minute with a goal, and Josie Altidore in the 89th minute off of Clint Dempsey. I don't even know what that's called, but <laughs> a bad touch. <laughs> no, not even that. It was just like it was. I don't know. It was weird. Okay, it was like against Bosnia when Josie dribbled into Eddie Johnson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and he tapped yeah. it. It's kind of similar to I that. I feel like that that Bosnia friendly was like one of the most memorable friendlies of all time. Oh, it was it was wonderful. Yeah. You were actually in LA. Where you are yes. now? Not in this room. Or we exactly, both were. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so your first thoughts on this game? Well, I know what my first thoughts were. Um, well, unfortunately, I, I don't have a DVR, so I wasn't really able to rewatch anything. Um, but being there, I think the first thought I had was the lineup. Wow, 433, uh, well, at least that's what it was listed as. Um, and it, it, it sort of operated as one. A 433 was very, very interesting to see Graham Susie in midfield along with Bradley and Beckerman um, was, was really cool. I still think, although Susie played well and he scored, I think Nagby would be best suited for that position couple of things. Cameron at center back. 
works. Bradley as more of a box to back box midfielder works. DeAndre Yedlin at right back works. Um, and surprisingly, Clint Dempsey uh, up top worked pretty well. I know it's against Guatemala. And Bobby Wood on the left, I thought, had a good match, except for that one miss where he probably should have scored. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think everyone was glad to see a more proactive formation than the 4-4-2. No one really wants to see a 4-4-2 anymore. Uh, I mean, I still think that our goals... Like, if you just look at our goals, I don't think that they were really uh, indicative of, like, really good play. A couple of them were pretty fluky, but I think overall we deserve the win no matter really how you look at it. And we did have opportunities that were, uh, yeah. you know, good chances that we that we messed up on. But I, I don't think – I didn't see a problem in terms of the, like, the team's identity or really how we looked. But then again, we're only playing Guatemala, so at home. I mean – yeah, I mean, we had we definitely had prettier opportunities that we didn't convert. Um, I think I, the the delivery on the Jeff Cameron goal was fantastic. That was a great cross by Michael Bradley, and overall, Michael Bradley played really really well. Uh, and it's exciting to see. I hope he can keep that up because that's what we need. Uh, I you know, I think he, I, I think he is our best midfield. Uh, best midfield. Oh yeah. Excuse me. I mean, like you were. I think you were talking to D, was it? Yeah, I was listening to one of the podcasts, and you said that the two players that are the best player for the national team were... Okay, anyway, I don't really remember who you said, but there were two other people, and I think that Bradley should be in the discussion. I think I said um, Fabian Johnson and Jeff Cameron. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, can you really... Oh, no, maybe I said John Brooks. I yeah, think I said, said John, John Brooks. Brooks and Fabian Johnson. Um, yeah, John Brooks and Fabian Johnson. I, I still think that's true. When does Bradley um, not perform well? I mean, he hasn't. He didn't perform well at the Gold Cup. He didn't perform up to standards at the World Cup, although he was nursing an injury. And I think that's why... I, I definitely think he's held to a much higher standard than the other players on the team, for sure. I think he's always under scrutiny. Um, but, you know, Michael Bradley is one of my favorite players... He 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 gets the job done. I mean, okay, yeah. Like, I know what you're talking about. Like, a lot of times he, he does, like, screw up in the final third. But overall, yeah. like, you also, even though they're, they're set pieces, I think that he he creates a lot of goals just on that. Oh, he yeah. does. He does. He does. And I think one thing I'd like to see is him just take shots. I feel like sometimes he's a little timid and he tries to over-elaborate. Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, you see him uh, try to take that chip when he was, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of, he would have been better just uh, as I think he just rip it, rip it. We saw it against everyone around me was saying rip it, so I'm just saying that. Um, he 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 has a good shot. He has brilliant technique. We've seen it before. He's a good long shot taker. We've seen it with Roma. That's where majority of his goals came from yeah. with Roma. Uh, yeah. Um, let's talk about Giassi's artist. He had two assists in this match. Probably two accidental assists. Um, one where he just jumped up and it fell to Clint Dempsey. Right. Second one, he took a terrible touch off of his... Uh, uh, I don't know, it was a terrible touch and then it fell to Zussi. Um <laughs> I mean, I guess he, he, me. he makes... You're okay. He makes stuff happen. Um, but, I don't know. Like, one minute he's megging someone and running down the field. The next minute he takes a touch 20 yards backwards. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That one touch that just went back into our own half... I, I don't... I just don't know. I'm not sold. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, no. I, I don't think... 
anyone, either of us, have been sold on Jassy in a while. I mean, he definitely has an upside. We always say that. Uh, yeah. I I still want to see him maybe one more time in that number nine role because I, I think that's where he was playing in that whole uh, Germany-Netherlands road-friendly group. You know what I'm talking about? Or not group, yeah. but whatever that was. And I, Set of I think, like, oftentimes on the wing, it's just... He's going to provide not nearly what I think Nagby could provide or Fabian Johnson, you know, will. Right. Well, I guess, you know, Fabian Johnson would probably be the starter. On Bobby Wood and Fabian Johnson, I, I would hope, um, would be the two starters. Unless Fabian Wait, Johnson slots back to why left Why not back. Nagby? I mean, even though, like... <laughs> well, I'd like to see Nagby where Zuzi played. Yeah. If we, if we stick with this formation. Yeah, we, we could do so, that. So, I think that's where he's so better. You, did you think that... Kyle Beckerman, you know, allowed Bradley and Zuzi to be more comfortable pushing forward. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as old as he is, we, I don't, can we really? I don't think we can really let go of the guy yet. I, he's still. I don't think there's anyone that Bradley has a better connection yeah. with. I mean, no one, they, no one they, really fits that role. Like, I do not trust like mm-hmm. Jermaine Jones in that role really anymore. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, Jermaine Jones can play where Zuzi played. Yeah, I yeah. think. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. Um, like, if you try to play him in that number six role, I think, like, he'll try, you know, he'll try to get forward too much. Yeah, but I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, if, if Zeusy, or if uh, Jones and Bradley are both, you know, rotating, I don't know if that's a bad thing. Um, but, you know, you think Danny Williams, who's maybe a little yeah. bit more attacking, maybe Alfredo Morales, Will Trapp, and Perry Kitchen eventually. Uh, Jeff Cameron's the one I want to see there. Um so, yeah, man, you know, Steve Birnbaum, I thought, was Wait, pretty so good, too. So what's your ideal center-back pairing? If you want to see Cameron in the midfield? Um, I think, I think Brooks and Beasler is my ideal center-back pairing. And maybe Omar Gonzalez, or maybe even Birnbaum, who's playing well. Yeah, yeah, uh, I can. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's... I mean, he, he just plays so well at center-back, so it's hard not right. to play him. Like, there. I think Brooks and Cameron is what, is what I would... I mean, I think that's yeah. a realistic possibility, considering... I mean, Klinsman hasn't played Cameron in, in the midfield many times, has he? Uh, I mean, he played in the yeah, World Cup that. against Belgium. Belgium. Um, and he played in qualifiers against Panama, remember, when we had the excellent display up in Seattle? Right. Uh, back in 2013, I believe. Yeah, 2013. I mean, he played there because Michael Bradley was injured. Um, yeah, so... Well, no, he played against Costa Rica because Michael Bradley was injured. I can't remember if Jermaine Jones... I don't remember. But, I mean, he's playing there for Stoke a little bit this year, so... You know, you, I would like to see Did we talk him. about uh, fullbacks? No, we didn't. Well, I think Yedlin was excellent. I thought Yedlin was excellent. Um, you know, he... he did he, His positioning was good, which is not always a given with him. Uh, you know, he had some nice touches, some overlapping runs. He's just so much more comfortable there. He has a much more profound impact on the match from right back than he does from the wing. And I think this was really indicative of that. And we see, just in not even a full year, but um, how much he has matured playing with Sunderland. How much his... Once again, it is Guatemala, but his positioning was good, um, and his defending was pretty good, too. He was able to track back multiple times, I remember, uh, and clear the lines. And he, in the air, you know, he was contesting in the air, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think that's the right position to play him at. Just, I mean, even, he's more effective there, and I just think that we have less options at fullback than, than outside midfield right. or wing at this point. 
Right. Uh, yeah. So what? I mean, we saw three substitutes in this game. I thought they were all pretty effective. Um, I mean, maybe maybe yeah. I would have liked to see a little bit more from Pulisic. I mean, I mean, what can you? I mean, I'm not going to complain about yeah. Pulisic, but <laughs> or, yeah. well, how did uh, Phil Shane say to pronounce his name? Uh, Pulisic. Yeah, Pulisic. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Um. Doesn't yeah. Pulisic um, make it? Doesn't that like that C at the end make him sound more creative? <laughs> like, I, I don't like know. Modric, I, don't know. Or... I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Modric. I mean, he is of Croatian descent, so I don't know. Um, that's interesting. Uh, maybe it is Modric. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was nice to see him. I thought he looked comfortable. Uh, his touches were good. He was begging for the ball in a Josie Altador goal. Um, I mean, he really could have scored. We've seen that multiple times. Remember when Aubameyang scored for Dortmund? Uh, Pulisic was open on the back post. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so he's he's close. He's close. He's not there. But, uh, Finley, I thought, was really, really good. He provided a good outlet. Should have scored. Did score. Well, you know, I just looked at the picture. I know we were discussing earlier. He was onside. And it's so disappointing because the crowd was going crazy. And oh, that would have been so good. You know, we, we saw Eddie Johnson in the last World Cup qualifying cycle score in Seattle. We saw Graham Zussi score in Sporting Kansas City. Ethan Finley, I was really hoping, would score. And remind me who the final substitution was again? Uh, the final substitution was... Oh, Josie, Josie. No, no, Josie was uh, the it wasn't the final. Yeah. yeah, it was the first one. But I meant the final one, as in we didn't talk yeah. about it. Um, and then Josie, you know, it was good to get him some fitness, good to get him on the score sheet. Tied Eric Winalda um, in all-time goals. And Clint Dempsey, actually. He is now the all-time leading scorer in World Cup qualifying for the U.S. Men's National Team. Um, so congratulations to both of those guys. As if they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, going back to Pulisic, though, or Pulisic, whatever. <laughs> uh, I I think that, you know, a lot of times you want to get these young guys uh, a goal, you know, to boost their confidence or, or something, but I don't think that I see a lack of confidence from him. I, I really like what he's no. doing, and, you know, I, I'm not too right. upset that uh, Josie got that last goal. But, you know. No, I mean. It would have been cool to see Pulisic score. I just think, I mean, you, you, like you said, his confidence is through the roof. He's so comfortable. And he remember, this is 17 years old. I don't think maybe since Landon Donovan, we haven't really had a prospect like this. Um, and I'm not saying he can be as good as Landon Donovan, I'm, or he will be. I'm not saying he, he won't be better than Landon Donovan. I mean, I think anything is possible at this point. Uh, but, it, I don't know, it was just so exciting to see him. I was going crazy. Um, as I saw him, you know, coming onto the field, suiting up. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a question that I'm going to pose right now is that, is that, do you think that Pulisic should have gone with the U20? Or, yeah, I mean, do you think it would have been better for him to go to, with the U23s so we could have, you know, perhaps qualified for the Olympics? Since um, Well, let's talk about that for a second. Um, the U.S. men's under-23s national team lost 2-1 to one at home, unfortunately, uh, in the second leg of the Olympic qualifying tournament. We reduced to nine men. Uh, not a great display. Um, but, yeah, maybe. You know, I, I don't know. Is it important to cap-tie him? Possibly. I don't think he was ever going to play for Croatia, to be honest. Um, but, you know, I guess maybe to get him integrated into the national team... It, it depends. You know, if we were to qualify for the Olympics, where would he be this summer? I, it's a, it's, I think it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if he would be with the Olympic team. Um, I, I think you know, that the it, only way that, like that I really like that choice is if we never see him for a youth team. Like we always see him for the senior team when given the choice. 
Yeah, and I think that's what's going to happen. Okay. Well, you, you think he's going to play the U20 World Cup? I, I, I don't... I, I don't know. I... I don't think he will. That's next I don't, year. I, I mean, I think at this point, you just bring him on to the senior team whenever you can, yeah. I'm, oh, okay, so obviously he's 17. Obviously he hasn't played much, but he still played way more Bundesliga minutes than anyone else on this team except for Fabian Johnson, Alfredo Morales, and John Brooks, and Timmy Chandler. You know, he, he's playing for Borussia Dortmund. Uh, you know, not super consistently, but, I mean, he... he he has to be. I think he's good enough for this team. I mean, I don't see, I don't see anyone that really surpasses his technical ability. And I think it really says something that like he surged so quickly from being on their second team to just being a guy that went into the eighteen, and then and then he just consistently comes on as a substitute. Yeah, I, I, I mean. I mean, he he was down to the U19s for a few weeks, but that's not that has nothing to do with them him being out of favor. They want to develop him, and Dortmund is a great place to develop if you can stay within their system. You know, obviously Terrence Boyd was there; it didn't work out with Dortmund. But I, this is a, this is a totally different. I mean, this is totally different. Um, I mean, Pulisic, I, I'm I'm really excited. You know, it's, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think you know people compare him to the other prospects we've had, um, at, at least recently, I don't think I've seen anyone with as much confidence, with as much composure, and more importantly, no one, none of our recent prospects have been getting first-team minutes with their parent club, consistently. It hasn't happened with Julian Green or Gideon Zalalem, um, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's not something that's really happened. So I'm just, I'm excited, cautiously optimistic, as I said. All right, yeah, why don't we take that into the U23 game versus Colombia? Uh, we lost 1-2. to two. Uh, Roger Martinez yeah. scored a brace for Colombia to lift them over the U.S. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's not really a whole lot. I missed the first half because I was stuck at the stadium. Um, but I was listening to it. Uh, yeah, it. The second half, Luis Gill gets sent off. Ten minutes after coming on, Matt Miazga gets sent off. Uh, just disappointing disappointing and you know as Phil Shane said it was you know even 1-1 it was a good result it was still you know people still thought rightly so that Columbia would win and they're just a superior team and this shouldn't have come down to this we should have qualified in October and missing back-to-back back-to-back Olympics is not something that should happen it's not something that should happen and it's very, very disappointing. I think it's it's a big opportunity lost for some players like Tim Parker, like Eric Miller, these guys who aren't necessarily ready for the full national team this summer, but who could use some international experience. Um, and it's, it's just very, very disappointing to once again not qualify for the Olympics. And I don't... We didn't really deserve to qualify for the Olympics, to be honest. So... I mean, yeah, uh, it it's just can be a, such a vital competition for development. I mean, right. you know, like those players that you just mentioned that are on the borderline. I mean, you get a you you get a for those players who aren't playing in the Copa America, you get you know you get Will Trap, Kellen Acosta, Matt, Matt Miazga. Yeah, I mean that's that international experience is. I mean, first of all, they, they get to know what it's like to have you know the world watching you. There's a lot more pressure. And yeah. second, of, I mean, you're you're playing against the highest competition at that U23 level, and right. We I mean, we might see Neymar in this tournament. Yeah, I 
Uh, that, it's just really disappointing, even from an entertainment aspect. I mean, I wanted to see us play in the Olympics. That... Yeah, of course. But the women are there. They did qualify, which is which is excellent. Uh, and excited to see what they can yeah, do. Because that is the full women's national team. And, yeah, I think we're going to start talking about them more. Um, we should. I agree. When we talk, we, we obviously, we did a lot with the World Cup last summer. Um, yeah. I mean, so. probably more with than, than we did with the Gold Cup. Yep. Yeah. Well, not after the whole Panama fiasco. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah. I mean, that and losing to Mexico in the CONCACAF Cup, those were some dark moments of 2015. Yeah. 2015 was supposed to be yeah. And, you know, we haven't talked about Jurgen Klinsmann and his job security. We did with Phil Shane, kind of. We did with Phil Shane, but... Yes, we won last night. Still in the last week, we failed to qualify for the Olympics, and we lost to Guatemala. That still happened. There should be more pressure on him than there was coming into Friday, I believe. As Phil Shane was saying, every U.S. team, besides, I guess, the women's, should be should be a, a factor when deciding whether to keep Clinton or not, because he's a technical director, not just the head coach right. of the U.S. national team. So if you see... Not just a short-term drop-off, but just in general, the U17, U20, U23 teams haven't been playing as well. Then, I mean, you have, you have to. I mean, okay, the, the U20s made it to the quarterfinals and lost to the eventual champions in penalty kicks. Yeah. Okay. So that that you know that was a good performance by them. Um, yeah, Serbia. Yeah. But yeah, but overall, I agree with you. Yeah, Serbia. But overall, I agree with you. Definitely. Yeah, but. Uh, so we've got an exciting weekend of club soccer this weekend, which we'll probably recap on Monday. And yeah, El Clasico. Yeah. Uh, it, even, yeah. even if you know, even if Real Madrid can't really win the title anymore, it's still going to be exciting to watch. And you know, I'm sure the fans of both teams still want to win this game. So yeah, it'll be very, very exciting. As always, we do have an email for this podcast. If you're new, send us some questions at soccerbrotherspodcast at gmail we are on iTunes and Google Play, as I said at the beginning of the episode, so definitely go subscribe, uh, rate, comment, check us out there. Uh, we also do have a Twitter, at Soccer Bros Pod, as well as an Instagram, at Soccer Bros Pod, uh, as well as a Facebook page, so go check us out there. As always, all the links to our social media and to today, Phil Shane's social media, will be in the description. Also... If you want to check out an amazing sports or soccer apparel brand named Ambitious Strike, go to ambitiousstrike.com. That's A-M-B-I-T-I-O-U-S-S-T-R-Y-K.com. They have great apparel, and if you want to get 15% off on your entire purchase on the website, enter the code BROTHERS at checkout. Uh, Just as also with the social media, the link to the website will be in the description as well. All right, Sahil, what an episode that was. Um, but we're we're a little we're going a little long on time. So um, guys, thank you so much for listening. Once again, thank you to Phil Shane. We'll see you guys next time for episode forty of the Soccer Brothers podcast. <laughs>